Welcome to the Material Evolution Podcast. In recent years, we've heard a lot about the advances in additive manufacturing or 3D printing, but what can it actually achieve at the moment and what are the current pitfalls? Well, joining us today is Yannick Willemin, Head of Marketing and Business Development at 90 Labs, who will tell us where we actually stand with additive manufacturing today. Who are 9T Labs and what do you do? So 9T Labs is a young company founded 2018, spin-off of ETH Zurich, so from the technical university there in Switzerland. We are currently um, finance, so we just closed the Series A, so um, we will maybe come back to the financing point later on in the, the podcast. And for now, we are 35 full-time employees. So we doubled that last year and we plan to double it again this year. So also big focus on hiring besides the tech. What we do is really developing technologies, both soft and hardware, to facilitate access to the production of uh, continuous fiber composites. So at the end, the vision is really making composites manufacturing as uh, accessible as metal manufacturing. And um, yeah, that's where we aim to be. And now we start, of course, more to additive manufacturing side, but we are also going to do more hybrid topics further on. Excellent. Okay. And do you actually supply the 3D printers or do you man- manufacture using them? So, um, yes, we develop the 3D printers. We also develop the software, which goes hand in hand. I mean, it's also designing for manufacturing besides designing for the use case. And we also um, develop and produce other machines for now, a consolidation module, for example. Of course, in some cases, we manufacture in-house, at least up to the proof of concept, pre-series state, especially for industries which are regulated, such as aerospace and medical, where we need to do some certification loops before scaling up the production. But the production should always be at the customers because the aim is, as I was saying, to make these technologies accessible. So rather, let's say, tier one, tier two focus in terms of customer base. Yeah, okay. And and I think, um, obviously, we've had you speak at some of our events over the past year because, um, you know, additive manufacturing is is a hot topic. Um you know, in recent years, we've seen like a s- sudden surge in demand for add- additive manufactured components. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I would say it certainly um, shows a state of maturity. I mean, additive manufacturing, 3D printing is not very new. I mean, first technologies appeared more than 20 years ago. There's already patents which are um, not valid anymore. So it shows that there is quite some uh, development time which has gone into these technologies. I say uh, technologies because often we always speak about additive manufacturing, 3D printing, but there's very different uh, sub-families, let's say sub-clusters of technologies. And yeah, I mean, several of them have uh, hit certain point of maturity which allows to go um, in higher volumes or to go in really um, end-use parts. Probably for prototyping, it has it's quite established. Everybody understands about the prototyping part of 3D printing. Then we have also this other layer, which is rather printing 
tools, jigs and fixtures, and so on. And then the third layer, which is sometimes called additive manufacturing 2.0, is uh, where the market is the biggest, obviously, it's end-use parts and really bringing 3D printing into serial part production, which has a lot of challenges, but huge opportunities, of course. And all of them are converging because of a certain also technology uh, maturity, not only on 3D printing, but also on the software side, on cloud access and so on. I must admit, I've always preferred the name 3D printing to additive manufacturing because it, it does exactly what it says in the tin. Um, but in terms of additive manufacturing, what do you feel are the limits to to the process? And what are the limits to the materials you can use or the quality of the materials you can use? I mean, because of those different layers of uh, markets, I would say, as we have um, mentioned, the prototyping topic, I mean, a lot of companies in this field still run um, business models based on consumables because that's the only way to generate revenue if you are not really able to forecast what is produced with your printer. So you sell, of course, you make the margin on the material, means most of them have yeah, own materials or at least relabeled materials. And there, the robustness of the supply chain is certainly a major challenge if you want to scale up because um, it's not always easy to scale up those uh, supply chains in, in the material side. So it's a, that's certainly a challenge now when it's, uh, when it's going to scale up. It's also going to challenge the um, established say, business models because um, yeah, if you go serial part manufacturing, obviously a business model based on consumables might be tricky in some cases, or you might not be competitive at all compared to established conventional manufacturing techniques. But yeah, on the um, on the sourcing, on the raw material side, I see big uh, changes and opportunities. Of course, it always goes hand in hand. It's who is understanding it and who is going to partner with uh, major manufacturers within the supply chain. And probably what uh, what we see often when you visit Formnext, for example, is that all companies try to reinvent everything. Also, the core might be whatever, continuous fiber and printing. People will still, or the companies will put major efforts in developing their own translational um, tools to move uh, within the printer and so on, while Actually, you could also get a strong supplier with with a um, robust platform. So, so maybe shifting from doing everything in house to establish more um, yeah, more solid supply chains and just focus on your core. Okay, and in terms of materials, then are are there certain materials that can't be used for this sort of uh, process, or is there um a freedom to use whatever material you want that you can anything you can essentially melt down and reprint i mean we see that the material portfolio in this huge world of 3d printing if we consider all technologies is uh, growing and growing so there is no limitation technically physically chemically then certainly the limitation is does it make sense does it add value to use certain materials do we need to develop specific materials for this technology? Because we are also at a different level of resolution when 
building the parts certainly that that is uh, the key topic but technologically you could uh, you could use any material okay and something i always hear mentioned in the composites industry and i imagine it's a, a bigger issue in terms of 3d printing is the lack of standards so you hear a lot in composites that compared to metals it's a relatively uh, new mate- uh, new material I guess that's going to be an even bigger challenge when it comes to additive manufacturing because you're further on the cutting edge. Mm, on on one side, correct. I mean, so this is a current topic in 3D printing, the topic of uh, standards, because just because the way parts are built from a material point of view, we uh, we can't rely on the same KPIs or the quality criteria which have been developed for let's say more subtractive um, manufacturing techniques. On the other side, in the composites world, it's actually always been additive, isn't it? So we have all, I mean, I spent 15 years in the composites industry. So we have always stacked layers and then we had this bondage topic between the layers and then we applied post-processing to create this interlaminar strengths. And therefore, a lot of actually existing KPIs for the composites apply very well to uh, additive manufacturing or 3D printed parts because it's a bonding issue between layers. Then, of course, the resolution level and maybe the anisotropy level is very different in 3D printing because you can even in one layer decide where to put fiber and where not to put fiber, which is not possible with uh, usual textiles. Obviously, each part you're going to have different um, orientations to your um, to the fibers within the components. So, testing wise, do you need to have testing per component then, or is it acceptable to do like with composites coupon testing that would be representative of the final structure? I would say the the big advantage in uh, additive manufacturing probably applies to other technologies, but just the way it's developed, it's often full stack solutions, so it's including the software and the hardware side and means that once you have designed your part you have simulated it validated it all this in a digital environment and you then create a g-code this g-code is going to be replicated automatically by the machine so the way the material is going to be laid down so the part is actually going to be created is very automated compared to now still very manual processes in a lot of composite applications and that means that if i do automation and i kind of either i certify it's a process and i can be pretty safe on the reproducibility i mean that if i if i do it once it should replicate pretty well so that's a big advantage i would say this automation level behind the technology and then here you would have to define some uh, standards in the coupons to make sure that it correlates with the end parts okay um so what are the benefits to using additive manufacturing technology versus traditional manufacturing technologies for example mm-hmm. i mean there, there are several things of course there's challenges and there's uh, advantages and the, the waste side, I mean, we often speak about uh, sustainability and so on. So it's really using or reducing the, the waste 
to a minimum because you are just building up your parts with uh, necessary material. Okay, you might do some finishing, so I wouldn't say it's always a 100% or it's always 0% weight and 100% material efficiency, but it's definitely way better. And we see that also in uh, cost modeling that the, that has a positive impact on being competitive versus uh, established tra traditional manufacturing techniques. Then others is certainly depending on the technology, of course, is the possibility to do very small series or one-offs to have way higher design freedom and uh, yeah, all the classic uh, would say advantages. I'd imagine as well, because it's a thermoplastic technique in our application, then recyclability becomes a big advantage compared to traditional composite manufacturing techniques. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, of course, in traditional manufacturing techniques, you can use this uh, thermoplast or the um, thermoset. But yeah, thermoplastics is emerging com in volumes worldwide compared to thermoset. Thermoplastic is still lower. And it has this advantage that is remoldable, so you can also modify the part afterward. And of course, it helps when you want to recycle something, if you can remelt it, because you still have the challenge to separate fibers from polymers. So that's uh, certainly a big area of research with projects uh, ongoing. But um, yeah, that's why we also selected thermoplastics, because we see a lot of advantages during the process and in use and after use. Okay, so I saw a video on LinkedIn recently where people 3D printed a female mold and then injected continuous fiber reinforcement composite through the structure to get the fiber orientations that they required. Do you think this is a niche application or do you think this could be a possible long-term solution? Yeah, I'd, I'm not sure um, which company you're referring to. I know this and similar process at least from URICAT, which is a Spanish uh, research institute in composites. They have a process called uh, CFIP, and it's similar. So it's it's not, I guess, a mold 3D printed. It's uh, some injected parts, but you could 3D print, obviously. And then, yes, they, uh, they inject continuous fiber into some channels. Those channels are more or less complex. It certainly has huge advantages, but it's always depending on the... Um, on the use case, so it is always you always have to assess on the technical side and on the commercial side. Is it really bring an added value? And of course, is it competitive compared to the benchmark? Or if there is no benchmark, are you able to do something which didn't exist before? What I envision now with all these uh, yeah, new technologies, but also let's say, the hybridization between new and conventional processes because we will see more and more complex process chains just taking the best out of different uh, steps. It will end up having more and more niches in the market. So maybe you don't invest in one technology and you have to run all your applications for 10 years with this, with this technology because you invested a lot, but you will have more and more niche possibilities more accessible from the capex from the investment point of view and then you can adapt way better to um, specific applications 
just interested in how many parts a year you currently print and and also in addition to that what the challenges are that you you face um, in be, being able to scale that up to larger scale mass production mm-hmm. um, currently what we say because um, we will mention that probably afterward but we have also a multi-step process so we do um, additive manufacturing 3d printing at a certain point uh, of the process but we also post consolidate and to do that, we use um, traditional metal molds. That means a cost impact, which is not worth for one-offs. So we traditionally, we say between 100 and 10,000 parts, we are competitive. I mean, that's what we found out through um, screening more than 300 applications now up to date in different markets. And that's a sweet spot. So we are definitely not interesting going below 100 parts and that's rather the field for other technologies which don't need or don't have this post-processing and then everything yeah, beyond uh, 10, 20,000 parts because it always depends on the geometry of the parts. Some are bigger, some are smaller. Um, then yeah, probably other processes are more interesting or the limitations, I would say, is also the balance between resolution of printing and speed of printing. So printing speed is, uh, of course, is a matter of software. I mean, at the beginning, you make huge steps because if you uh, optimize the way you lay down the material, you can just increase uh, drastically your print speed. But at a certain point, once you have optimized all these uh, layer topics, you have also chemical limits of the materials and think about how to make polymer reticulation faster um, in a certain way so that you have a certain bonding which allows you to drive your um, your printer fast at least in straight lines some fdm printers they're going that fast that actually they induce heat through friction of material so that gets also interesting just to to bring heat into your system in different ways than just heating up locally with whatever energy source so I guess what you, in, in a basic terms, what you're saying is it's a similar thing to your desktop printer in that the faster you print, the more stuff you can get out, but it, you lose a bit of the quality of what you're getting out. Whereas if you slow it down, you can get high resolution printouts, but it comes with the, it's about getting that trade off to get the right print speed to get the components out and the right quality. Yeah, that, that's correct. And there's certainly always this phase where you have to identify what are the right applications for your current technology status. So now we we pretty quickly see when we speak with potential customers, okay, this is the right application. We can do it right now with our technology. We know the the cost competitiveness is there and the added value is there. Then there is some applications which are no-goes for our technology for certain reasons, especially if you mix continuous fibers with polymers, there is, it's not only about the, the, the speed of laying down the, the material, but it's also it's being selective in where to put what kind of material because we work with uh, different nozzles. And, um, and then there is these applications. We see huge potential, but we are not there yet either because we would need to be faster. The customer asks for a few cents per part and we are at a few euro per part, so this is just not possible by simply optimizing something. We would just need to rethink the technology 
or to hybridize it with um, with other ones, which is something we are looking at uh, seriously now. I see from your website that your method includes a hot press stage after the 3D printing stage. How much does this improve the properties achieved? And do you factor in linear cure shrinkage during the process to ensure that your components meet the net shape requirements after the pressing as opposed to before? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we don't do it just by pleasure to add this uh, consolidation step. And it means that we also have to engineer, design the mold, and uh, it has a cost impact. Uh, of course, it distributes over the amount of parts, but uh, it has it certainly adds some complexity in the in the process chain. So why we do it? Because there is an order of magnitude in the properties reached. So it's uh, we really speak about a factor six uh, to ten or even higher in some um, mechanical values, and that's just what we know from composites. I mean, basically be between a preform and an end part in composites, you always consolidate, be it in an autoclave, be it in a hot press, and so on. So here, what we do, we use a printer for the high resolution, low waste to get to a preform. And then this preform, in certain cases, can be used like that. I mean, that's what others are doing also, other 3D printing companies with uh, continuous fibers. But if you really want to go into a plane or into medical applications with serial parts, so speaking a few thousands, in terms of uh, reproducibility, it's key to have this consolidation step. We don't see any possibility to do it in situ now, at least not competitively. And then it's also allowing us to play with um, actually printing different preforms pre and actually fusing them together, so doing um, thermoplastic welding to get fiber orientation in three directions while the 3D printer is printing 2D. Okay, a slightly less technical question for myself. Um, so we've seen, obviously, through the site that you manufacture luxury watch cases. Have you managed to get any of these luxury watches for yourself? I mean, they are coming out mid of this year. And uh, some of us are already saving to buy one because it's certainly great to own the first serial part product which is coming into the market. And it's easier to buy a watch than a plane. So let's say at least uh, the access is easier. But yeah, we, we are certainly getting a few. Let's say we will certainly show some, uh, some parts which we will get uh, as, a, as a gift. But ourselves, we will... Uh, it's still affordable. It's not a watch costing a million. So it's possible with hard work to get it. <laughs> excellent, <laughs> excellent. So can you tell us about the component? I know you just touched on it now that you've done make stuff for the medical um, medical industry. Can you tell us a little bit about the components you make for the medical industry? Yeah, so medical is one of the two major industries we are tackling with aerospace. Um, we see a lot of potential because there is, of course, uh, um, basically just from uh, functional analysis, there is some functions which are crucial and which are very uh, good with um, with composites. Of course, one of them can be lightweight and so on, but that's often not the key criteria where we are going in is, um, is the radio lucency. 
So that, that's a key criteria for a lot of parts. And now we are looking at uh, aiming arms, surgical instruments. So it's still outside of the body. So for us, it's a good step to uh, understand the medical markets, to understand the certification steps before going into implants, because implants is also super interesting for for the same uh, reason that now you have a lot of metals. There is already um, actually composite implants uh, certified, but okay, it's it's not a big volume of the market. And here in the medical instruments, there is two key points. One is radiolucency, so you have to use a plastic versus a metal because during the surgery, they, it's non-invasive, so often they check about the placement of some screws, some parts with X-ray, so if they can reduce the amount of noise on the pictures coming from the instruments, it's a benefit in uh, really being sure that they made it well. And the second point is those instruments are then sterilized, and the sterilization as a consequence, if you don't reinforce the part with fibers, it will elongate, the tolerances will change over time, and this is something you don't want in, in surgical instruments. So that's where it comes in handy to bring in fibers. So currently it's milled out of blocks, so it's a lot of waste, 70, 80% sometimes of waste from very expensive material, and you cannot control the fiber orientation, so you always stack up this... Um, these textiles, so 0, 45, 60, 90. But you always have straight lines. And what we can do with 3D printing, we can go around holes, around more complex contours. So here we see a definitely huge added value, both economically and technically. Um, obviously, being a new technology, you get to, I imagine you get, get involved in quite a number of new interesting projects. Can you tell me... What's the most interesting project you've worked on so far? Yeah, I mean, obviously, many projects are interesting. One is uh, interesting on different levels. It's a project we, uh, we have with Setforge. So Setforge is one of our first customers. And this company, as the name is, uh, is telling, is actually coming from metal forging. So high-value metal parts and being actually a supplier for many different industries, aerospace, medical, and so on. And a few years ago, they thought about, um, because they are in these premium applications, what about actually adding some materials in their portfolio? So it's not about replacing. It's really about adding uh, some uh, materials. And then they thought, of course, about composites, because that's also a way to stay in the premium the market. And just um, they were not interested in, buying or getting uh, composites uh, supplied with existing manufacturing techniques. So they really put a lot of effort and really basically learned themselves, studied what does uh, the material allow, what does it mean. So they, they really did a lot of work with universities and then they found out they even have patents on composite manufacturing, interestingly. And then they were looking actually for a way to make it industrial at least what, what they found out in the, in the lab. And that's where um, we met and we just, we are the kind of uh, industrial technique based on the knowledge they developed uh, in-house. So it's very interesting for 
a metal manufacturer to, to go beyond uh, today and think about the future of manufacturing. From your website, we can see that you do more than just the 3D printing element. Can you tell us a little bit more about your engineering service? Yeah, because of the, of the complete, let's say, process steps, including software, 3D printing, consolidation, means that we, of course, we have to um, engineer the parts so that they withstand whatever loads in their use phase. But we also have to, to produce the, um, to design the parts for the manufacturing technique. And we also have to design the molds. So we have all these competencies internally because often it, some parts of the process are understood by our customers, but some other parts are completely new. So in terms of market access and speed of accessing some markets, it's key for us to do a lot in-house. So that's why we run often a six to 12 months projects in-house on dedicated machines for some customers so that we go to the pre-series, really set up all the parameters. We do the, the development topics from material development. That's where we have our material uh, partners, so being uh, Evonik, Solvay, and Arkema for the moment, and where we go really deep from the material science to then to the designing printing and also designing molds and uh, yeah, understanding the, the whole process chain. So, so really, a company can come to you um, it, with a basic requirement, not fully understanding the, um, the technology, and you're able to kind of hold their hand the way through from, you know, from idea to, to product development. Yeah, definitely. So there, there we can really stretch it or reduce, of course, the level of uh, of support depending on who we are speaking with. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, so we're moving on to one of my favourite questions that we do ask all our guests. Um, a bit more lighthearted. If you could choose any three people, past or present, to invite to dinner, who would it be? And more importantly, what would you eat? <laughs> Yeah, so who would it be? Actually, I thought about it. So um, I would actually invite Napoleon, Musk, and Merkel. So why is that? So the topics would be more um, about actually geographical expansion. I mean, either on Earth, like uh, Napoleon uh, did and or planned more or less, and uh, Musk maybe going. Uh, outside of Earth even, thinking about this, all these plants in space on Mars. And and then also having the, the more political experience of Merkel. Now she has time, so she's probably uh, happy to be invited <laughs> yeah. to, to speak about yes, the pros and cons. Uh, what does it mean? I mean, expansion means also retraction, retraction for others. Um, so are you trying to tell us that 90 Labs' uh, goal is for world domination in the uh, 3D <laughs> printing market? It's the interpretation of the hidden message. <laughs> yeah, no, and that would be one topic, and certainly the other topic would be more. Um, that would certainly be led by uh, by Musk, but uh, Merkel has some good insights because she had really good advisors here on yeah all these um, virtual world topics, uh, metaverse, and so on. I mean, it would be interesting to to see the reaction of Napoleon when uh, he was pretty much uh, down on earth on his uh, on his horse and 
thinking about okay, living in a virtual world, which somehow we are partly, and we are certainly going to be more and more. So, yeah, that's uh, certainly the, the two topics which would uh, allow us to to um, yeah, to enjoy what the, the people bring to eat. So yeah, what uh, what shall we eat? I mean, if you ask that to a French guy, I mean, we have a lot of options, but I would really encourage uh, those three people to bring some of their specialities. So for Napoleon, it would be what was he eating during a battle? Would be interesting to know. Certainly uh, some uh, not that light food like we are more used to do now in sports. Uh, Musk, what he would eat on uh, on Mars. Maybe 3D printed food. Let's see. And uh, yeah, for Merkel, maybe what was her first plate after she finished the 16 years of being a chancellor of Germany? I would bring the wines. I was just about to ask what would you bring. <laughs> I would bring the drinks. Good choice. Good. I think the interesting thing for me with Merkel in particular is she's quite unique in terms of modern politicians in that. She's got a scientific background. She did her PhD in quantum chemistry. I think that gives you a very different outlook on, on the world and current affairs. And I think I'd like to see more of that in politics these days. Yeah, and it's also pretty uh, unique, I mean, at least for Western U um, democracies, that somebody is at this level for 16 years. I mean, I, I remember I was in a, a political um, discussion in Berlin a few years ago, and there was a French journalist, he's well-known, he's writing for Le Monde. He's known for his uh, knowledge of African countries, and he just came back after six months of touring through Africa, and uh, yeah, he has good connections there in the politics, and he was making a, yeah, a sarcastic comment about actually a bit uh, a comparison between dictatorship in, uh, in Africa and some head of state in Germany being there for 16 years. So it has pros and cons. Of course, she knows everything what happens. She knows, of course, all presidents and their different um, advisors in many countries. On the other side, now we see that uh, when you change the system after 16 years, you really have to restructure down to, uh, to things which you thought are working well, but they're just working well because the system didn't change. Another good one um, that we do like to ask. Uh, and to finish, can you tell us your favourite joke? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I I often like to uh, to find out situations which are funny, or at least putting a smile on people's face. So it's it's not a, a common joke, but that was an interesting situation during uh, Christmas. So, I mean, I have two kids, and uh, my son is four years old, and we were staying in Paris with my uh, parents, and then. In the morning, they're always waking up super early, like at 6 a.m. Both kids are awake and uh, ready to go. And then they ask their, their grandmother, the four years old, ask, okay, let's go to the bakery because, of course, we can always get croissant and baguette and it's nice. And she said, oh, uh, give me a, an hour and we, we will go at nine o'clock. And for Christmas, he, he got my, my watch when I was uh, his age. I had a small flick flag watch with a Lamborghini on it. So he got it for Christmas and he was super happy. But he went to his room, came back and said, okay, now it's nine o'clock. So he managed to put the clock on, on 9 a.m. 
and he was ready to go with the shoes. So, so yeah, that's a, a good way to to have a smile on us on our faces. Excellent. Is that him just uh, sneaking in? Yes, yes, actually, now? that's that's Perfect not that's not prepared, but somebody, <laughs> somebody is listening. In His the ears must have been burning. And <laughs> <laughs> um, just one thing before we close. So, um, Janet, you're very well aware that myself and Bright stupidly agreed to ride our bikes to um, to JEC this year. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm still questioning why I agree to that one, Gemma. I, I think we both are. And actually, um, <laughs> it's eight weeks to the day that we will have to set up. Um, Sounds so, good. So full so, yeah. training mode. Yes. And I know that you um, you said that you might also ride to JEC from Switzerland. Is that still an option? Yeah, it depends from, from where, because uh, I'm half in, uh, in Munich and in, in Switzerland. But I mean, it's an option. Obviously, I am organizing the full check for the company. So let, let's see if it's uh, if it's really feasible. But I mean, I have myself. I have a background in uh, competitive cycling. So it's, <laughs> yeah. Certainly, yeah, it's always a nice sense to know how many kilometers you can really cope with per day. So uh, my best one is three twelve, three twenty kilometers in ten hours. So yeah, we won't be doing that. You're, you're <laughs> way ahead, of, way ahead of us there. But, but, it's, but, but it's still more than the distance between Zurich and Paris. I would certainly not do it in one day. But um, yeah, it sounds a super challenge. And, yeah. yeah. But uh, also uh, speaking with some guys in the company because we will be uh, 15 or 18 of uh, of our company joining Jack, and uh, yeah, we have many young, uh, ambitious people doing a lot of crazy things in sports so yeah maybe it would be um, it would be nice definitely to communicate uh, even more and uh, of course not start all at the same point but just do a to convergence meet. and uh, yeah meet yeah. At, typically uh, meet at the top of the Champs-Élysées which is uh, the classic one yeah yeah absolutely are we so here uh... here first guys this is the start of the great jack bike ride as long as the <laughs> french will let us in we cycle over <laughs> so what bike are you planning to use well a good you see, question. <laughs> this is a very good question and we have we we have both got road bikes but they are very much entry-level road bikes so i know we're both discussing whether we need to upgrade said road bikes before the event um We'll yeah, see. My, my view is I don't think we can cycle to the biggest composite trade show in the world on al on aluminium bikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need to find a sponsor. Yeah. Certainly one of those exhibitors can sponsor some bikes. Well, the offer's out there to any listeners if they want to sponsor us to have a you know a composite frame that they've been involved in, then we would happily take those bikes. But Either way, eight weeks from today we'll be uh, we'll be right you know we'll be riding. Um, so by the time this is released, I think it'll be yeah weeks away. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> How did you came with the idea? Um, well, I had alcohol. Yeah, that's yeah, I my, don't know excuse. What my excuse. Was. <laughs> I don't know. Grant doesn't drink, so clearly just feeling slightly crazy on the day. Well, I, I do like a challenge. Uh, I mean, last year I joined the Welsh Australian Rules football team in a a running challenge where between us we had to run the distance, the equivalent distance of London to Melbourne. 
and we were racing against other countries in Europe and we did win that one and I was on my knees after the nine weeks of doing it. But yeah, as soon as Gemma said, I was like, oh yeah, sounds like a good challenge, get me fit again. And then, yeah, the more I've been thinking about it, the more I'm regretting it, but I'm committed now, so... Uh, yeah, we're in, we're doing it. We're the doing good it. point is that during the, there's a less good season from the weather point of view, you are forced to do something. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I went out for a, 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 a no distance to you, but a, a 50k ride at the weekend. And it was absolutely freezing, raining, <laughs> and about as miserable as it can get. So, but there we go. At least you enjoy coming home. Yeah. <laughs> so, the best yeah. is a shower afterward. Yeah. Cool. So if any of our listeners would like to find out more about 90 Labs and what you do, how should they get in contact? I mean, the, the easiest is uh, Yannick at 90labs.com or look for my LinkedIn profile. And of course, you can always go on the website and there's different ways to interact with us. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming along today and for allowing us to interview you. Um, and for some of our less serious questions. Um, and yeah, we look forward to seeing you in Paris, hopefully at the end of a very nice bike ride. <laughs> Thank you. I will At least I will uh, welcome you at the top of the Champs-Élysées. Maybe I have the, the chance to ride also the bike. Perfect. We'll, we'll expect your wine at the end. Yes, yes, you will get oysters and wine, but I'm not sure you will enjoy the oysters. So bring some chocolate from Switzerland. Perfect, perfect. All right, well, we'll um, we'll catch you soon. Thanks again, and um, thank yeah. you, Gemma. Thank you, Gerent. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this month's Material Evolution podcast. As mentioned in the show, Gemma and I will be riding our bikes from London to Paris in time for this year's Jeff World Exhibition in March. We'll be doing this ride in aid of the Mental Health Charity Mind. If you'd like to sponsor us, then please head over to justgiving.com forward slash London to Jeff. 